what I did with Keanu is I just I recorded it, made an edit, sent it to her, and she had any feedback. And you're welcome to do the same. Anything you want in or out. But um, yeah, yeah. How how are you doing? Are you yeah? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I can't. Uh, I'm sure I won't. Have, well, if I have any feedback, I'll let you know. I probably won't. Partly because I cannot stand. I'm like one of those interviewers that when I live, I have to transcribe. I like mute myself when I'm talking because I hate listening to myself talking so much. Yeah. So the idea of re-listening to this to give notes on it uh, gives me incredible anxiety. So uh, I'm yeah, almost yeah. certainly not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we'll just yeah. uh, jump into. It. I guess I didn't write a formal introduction for you. <laughs> before i started i'll have to maybe uh loop that in myself on my own but i'll, I'll try one now and um and see what i can do here all right so we're here with the uh second shuffle synchronicities podcast and uh ray was also the second guest poster uh the regular guest posting on shuffle synchronicities and he was the first guest poster who really actually like uh did it the right way <laughs> no offense to uh uh the first person who was also brilliant in, in their own way but you know, Ray stuck to the uh, the script and shuffled, and he ended up with uh, a song from uh, Bob Dylan's Christian era, which was uh, hit pretty hard for me because uh, that is also really important, as we'll get to later in the podcast. But yeah, so Ray runs a a Bob Dylan Substack that is a top ten Substack uh, for for most of Substacks existence. It seems like, which is pretty amazing. He then moved on to a Tom Wade Substack as well, where he. Uh, the, the Bob Dylan one is is live concerts and Tom Waits is every Tom Waits song, which is a lot of them. And uh, he's also really well known for writing about cover songs. He had a he has a long running um, blog about that called Cover Me. And I've also checked out some of his books. He he turned Cover Me into a a book about cover songs, which you learn a lot about uh, the, the history of cover songs and how that all came through. And and then recently he did a up about Leonard Cohen with 33 and a third and 33 and a third are something that I've always, always wanted to write on my own and, and loved uh, growing up. Uh, so to have someone like that to be part of my, you know, growth as a writer and music writer is a real treat. So thank you, Ray. Thank you Ray, for joining us. Uh, what an intro. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so one of the things that overlap too is like this year, Bob Dylan was on tour again and I hadn't seen him since I was much younger and I, I wanted to go. So I got tickets and it was in June. And I, I emailed you cause I didn't know who to go with. I was like, I want to go with Ray. Like Ray's like, he travels and goes to these shows. Like who better to see, you know, a live Dylan concert, but then like you, the expert right now in, in, in the history of live Dylan. So I emailed Ray and what, you know, you, yeah. Sadly, on the wrong side of the country. I do travel some, but I uh, can't, can't make all of them. You're in, you're in LA, I'm in Vermont, so yeah, couldn't get out west. And then when I was trying to bring people, they were like, a lot of people were just like, I don't want to see Dylan. Like, he's, I've heard he's so bad, or like the last time I saw him, he was like so bad. Uh, so can you speak to like, but then, then other people are like, oh, I have tickets. I'm like, this is, I'm going, some people are like, I'm going to go to all three shows. Like people are like really, really into it still. So what is it about about Dylan's live performances that you know produce that kind of polarizing response? So I think a big part of it is just that Dylan shows, and this is you know kind of why I'm so interested in them. They're very different than certainly other you know acts of his era, but even modern bands. You know, if you go to see a concert, nine times out of ten, 
they're going to do the most popular songs and they're going to do them more or less the way they sound on the record. That's true for, you know, nostalgia acts from the 60s. That's true for the latest indie rock buzz band that, you know, put out their first album this year. And Dylan pretty much has never done that. He's probably not going to play the songs you think he's going to play. If he does play them, they're fairly likely to be unrecognizable, new arrangements, new <laughs> lyrics, new everything. And so that can turn people off who aren't expecting it. You know, he's, that's why he's sort of in terms of live, especially he's kind of a cult artist and like people get a, a, some fraction of the audience like me sees him once or twice like this and like gets, grows obsessed. He's definitely kind of in the Grateful Dead world and that people are obsessed with his live shows. Yeah. But plenty of other people go and they want to, you know, see him yeah. strap on an acoustic guitar and sing Blowing in the Wind and Mr. Tambourine Man. And he's not going to do that. Um, and so I think that that can turn people off. And I should say to those people's credit, the fact that he's sort of every concert is different and he lives on the edge. Sometimes they are genuinely bad, right? Like uh, the Rolling Stones, every night you're going to get, you know, if you like the Rolling Stones, it'll be a pretty good show. Right? It's going to be basically what you expect. They're not going to all of a sudden one night just blow it horribly or McCartney or someone, you know, they're going to do a good show. Um, a good sort of oldies nostalgia show. Whereas Bob, he kind of lives out there on the edge and, you know, sometimes he falls off. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about the mechanics of how they're living out on the edge? Because I was reading through a lot of your your interviews and I should say that the book is focusing, you, I, I maybe didn't say this yet, but you actually are turning your Substack into a a book. And um, a lot of those, about the interviews with band members of, of Bob Dylan. And can you talk about kind of the mechanics of how these live shows work and why they're living on the edge? Because it seems like to me, like it's different than, you know, when, when, when people bring bands together, they rehearse or they, you know, get it going in a way that is really tight. Like how does he, how does he conduct these bands? Maybe the question I'm asking. Yeah. So as you say, it's fairly different. There are rehearsals. I sort of going yeah. into this before I talked to the band members, I was like, he just wings it every night and they all wing it. But they actually do rehearse fairly extensively. The difference is what they rehearse may have little to nothing to do with what they then play. I've talked <laughs> to any number of band members who are like, we rehearsed for, you know, three days and we learned these 20 songs. And then the first show we went out and he didn't play any of the 20. Or like um, a while wow. ago, I interviewed Stan Lynch, who was the drummer for Compating the Heartbreakers, who like back, were Dylan's backing band for a couple of years in the 80s. And he, he had this funny story at one show, like, you know, halfway through the tour where you know, there's something written on the set list, but Bob just turns to him and goes, hey, Stan, what do you want to play? And so Stan just says, Lay, Lady, Lay, because that's a song he really liked that they had never played, never rehearsed. Uh, and uh, Bob's like, all right, we're doing Lay, Lady, Lay. And he just starts singing it and the rest of the band has to figure out <laughs> what to do. <laughs> right there on stage yeah. in front of like a stadium full of people. So that's very Dylan. I think I actually read that one that, that and someone was like, I think he asked the drummer what key to play it in, right? Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and like, right. the drummer was like, I don't, you know, I don't know. And then the other band members were like, no, no, play it in this one because yeah. it's clear in this yeah, one. Dr drums don't have a key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know. Uh, I, I think this is also kind of why he's almost like a jazz musician in that way, right? Like, I feel like that's a jazz leader who would kind of like just kind of go into something and then people would play along with it. Get on up here, teach. We ain't got all day. What what do we play? It's almost like a like a improvisational element that 
yeah, I guess, or, or like, yeah, is, is that, would you say that kind of almost like a jazz style? That's, I think that's a very astute comparison. And actually, I was just editing maybe two weeks ago, one of the interviews that's going to run in the book that hasn't been on the Substack um, with one of the guys who was on Rolling Thunder Review, a percussionist, and his line is very similar to that. He says, people, you know, the, mo- the most common question I get asked is what is it like to play with Dylan? And I said, and this guy, I should preface his, is like played a bunch of actual jazz. Um, and he says, my answer is always like that. It's the best jazz gig I've ever played. And he's like, people always give me a look like the hell are you talking about? But Bob Dylan's not a jazz musician. And like yeah. genre wise, no, he's not a jazz musician. But in terms of the approach, in terms of the live performance, he is. Wow. This is this is not one of the, the questions we prepped for, but did you happen to see that movie Soul with Pixar? Pixar Soul? Do you happen to see that movie yet? With like- uh, no, I, ha- I haven't yet. Oh, uh, okay. Because it's about jazz. But the only like non-jazz music that's in it is like a Dylan, there's a Dylan song. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. Yeah, it's... it's there's like a moment where like basically if you are in the in the state of playing jazz you go to this like underworld where it's also where you die also where you were born but it's also where you are when you're kind of creating music in the zone like this kind of mystic who travels around there and the music he plays in his in his boat is like this dylan song somehow like dylan is part of the jazz ethos to me too um not just not not just as a result of that movie but before that too but um so yeah you're you're talking about you know you you have this you you just mentioned that you have a uh new interview that you're doing that's only giving the book and so how it seems like this book came about through the popularity of these interviews and you know why do you think the interviews are the most popular part of your Substack and and how it took off Yeah um I I've, I've been thinking about that it's it's a good question something that sort of surprised me I mean you know the interviews my Substack's all about Dylan concerts and I don't know 75 probably no probably more probably 90% of them are not interviews you know they're cuz the interviews take a lot of work and it's hard to get people to talk Right um so I, I probably met, went, I don't know, a year before I did, an, did a single interview. Oh, wow. But I think it's that people, my sort of theory is that people are so fascinated by Bob Dylan as a figure and Bob Dylan as a musical performer because he's so different, because he's enigmatic, because he himself is not going to answer any of the questions you might have for him. Yes. So hearing these people who have actually worked with him, and in many cases haven't really spoken before I've, I've had a lot of luck getting these people who have been sort of silent for decades sometimes yeah um a window into you know sometimes it's like funny personal anecdotes and obviously everyone loves those but sometimes it's just sort of getting into the the weeds of like the you know creating these arrangements and playing on stage and what it's like dylan is a band leader and that sort of thing and and i think you know i'm fascinated by that and i think a lot of other people are are too because yeah it's this sort of black box that it's been, it's fairly hard to get a read on as with so much Dylan stuff. Yeah. This is, this is not the follow-up question that I was going to ask. How do you get these people to talk to you? How do you get, you know, uh, the trust of these, of these band members? I mean, is it because you built this, this following within beforehand? If you said you took a year for you to start doing interviews, is that people kind of look at your 
subs that can say like, okay, Ray is like, he understands what, what we were doing. And then they trust you and want to, want to, want to work with you. Like how did, how did that work? Getting all those people's trust. I think that's the big one. You know, it's, I, I mean, Lord knows I still get plenty of no's. People are reticent to talk yeah. about Bob Dylan, but when I first started, it was almost all no's, but then once I had, you know, some that had run, I could point people and people would see, oh, this isn't like gossipy or like yeah. dumb or like trying to pry into Bob's personal life. And it's also not the sort of interview that some of these people maybe have done before, where if it's like for a general outlet, you know, they do a 20 minute interview and the place uses two sentences, right. you know, because it's not yeah. someone like my place is for Dylan fans. Yeah. So like, it's going to get, it's going to go long. It's going to be wonky. I run all of them as Q and A's. So the people really, yeah. it's really in their own words. It's not me like paraphrasing loosely what they said. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And then people recommend other people. I'll do an interview and, you know, the guy likes it and he's like, oh man. So, you know, I was the drummer and you got to talk to the guitarist I was playing with. He was great. And let me give you his yeah. number. Yeah. So I, I get a lot like that too. Yeah. How many people would you say have played with Dylan? Have you ever calculated that? And again, this is not something we prep for. I'm just throwing it out there. Like, have you ever calculated how many like there were and are to still find like, you know, that kind of thing? Uh, I've no, I don't have a hard number, but you know, I've looked into it, you know, in terms of played with, cause like my interviews are sort of in two categories, the main ones, the longest ones are his official band members, but then I yeah. also have ones with, you know, people who sat in for a show or two or something in terms of the band members, rough estimate a hundred you know wow. he's he, wow. he's actually been fairly stable recently but in the earlier decades really up until maybe the maybe the 21st century there was a lot of rotation sometimes one person or two people at a time sometimes entire bands would come and go yeah so he's he's cycled through quite a few over the years yeah. wow yeah and, and going back to that black box statement there's been kind of a black box around this um culture of musicians who play with him um you know, I, I noticed that um, there seems to me at least that people do not, yeah, they don't really talk about not just his biography, but just like his intentions, you know, in terms of his music, what he's, what he's going out there on stage to do, even, you know, the songs, the lyrics themselves, um, you know, uh, and I, 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 there was a, there was a quote from one of the interviews that I, that stuck out to me was, he was a cult figure to me that you couldn't, could never know. So I didn't really bother trying. I didn't really think about his life or the depth of it. I was young and dumb, man, a rock and roll fan. I love what I loved and Bob was part of it. I love Steppenwolf too. I was more like, I wonder what kind of chicks Bob gets. I wonder what he drives. And so, you know, I, was, I kind of going through these, I was like, do you think that he sought out types of musicians who you know, respected that reclusive enigmatic element of, of his persona or we're not interested in it as this guy maybe is suggesting, you know, like, is there a type of musician that Bob sought out versus other kinds of musicians that he could have found? Um, that's an interesting question. You know, I also <laughs> don't know Bob's intentions on so many sure, things. There you go. Yeah. I guess I'm falling into the, 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 the problem itself. I will, I will say though, you know, we're, I'm talking about like the heartbreakers and I think that quotes from Stan too, but like, that's actually fairly unusual, especially in, the latest three or four decades, the people he tends to get tend to be unflashy, unfamous, kind of like musicians, musician types, names yeah. that most people wouldn't, has never heard of. Even big Dylan, you know, Dylan nerds, like usually when he, he the last time he hired a couple of people was when he came back from the pandemic. 
And I don't think anyone had heard of these people. And you look them up and they got credits, you know, they're legit, but they're fairly behind the scenes people. He doesn't tend to get like, I don't know. Oh, it's Bob Dylan and on guest guitar, this tour is Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so these people tend to be somewhat reclusive isn't the word, but they're not, you know, people who are doing a lot of interviews generally, and they're not people who are sort of really front and center with their own uh, public careers. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I think I think that's going to be a theme that comes out throughout this podcast is that like, I have a very like speculative brain. I mean, clearly, it's like, you know, the shuffle is, you know, in a way, it's all just confabulations of 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 what I'm projecting onto lyrics or myself or my, my, my reality. And whereas you seem to have a more, you know, uh, grounded, um, journalistic uh, perspective on, you know, on, on, on what he's, on what he's doing. Um, yeah. I mean, is, you know, is that an unspoken Dylan rule amongst people who write about Dylan? Is that how you are? Is that like, how does that work for you? um it's not it's not i'm not following any sort of dylan rule you know my audience is not obviously dylan or it's not even his office i sort of don't care what they think (laughs) um (laughs) you know i would say in terms of the interviews it's just the way i work you know all these i do all these other newsletters and those ones i'm a lot looser with opinion or just goofing around you know i'll do one it's like here are the 10 stupidest outfits he wore in 1987 Um, but yeah, on the interviews, I'm just sort of, I mean, it's sort of journalistic and also sort of, I just want to take myself out of it as much as possible. Like a lot of times when I'm editing them, I'll like delete a lot of my questions, you know, and just like, if I'm like asking follow-ups, I'll just get rid of them. So it's really mostly the person talking because yeah, um, yeah. I'm sort of, I try, I try to be more of a, a conduit to share their stories of yeah. working, working with Bob and not inserting myself very much. Yeah, I mean, it's a service to the community is it, it, what it feels like when I'm reading through them too, is like you're really allowing people who, lo- who love, you know, what, what they've seen live or, you know, just the history of, of, of his music and to, to get inside of it, which is, which is amazing. I mean, I, th- I, I, I love that part of it. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, uh, we were prepping for this call and we, had, we noticed that uh, you know, kind of what I'm saying is that I analyze the lyrics and, and you, you, you really don't. And it, and it was funny. You were like, I haven't really talked about that except for one time, which is a, which is an interview with, it was John, what's his name, John? Uh, Worcester. Worcester, from, uh, yeah. Super Chunk and various other bands. And he, and you, that was the interview that you actually were, did right before you did the shuffle guest post. And you actually mentioned mm-hmm. that you, that you did that interview with him because the same song was like mentioned in Water, Water Down Love was mentioned in your interview with him and it was also the song that you shuffled to and then that was the interview yeah, that was that was the synchronicity it was yeah, like it was i was like oh this is a random song i don't have much opinion on this song one way or the other and then like literally the next day or something i was talking to worcester and he with oh, exactly. no prompting okay. for me brought it up oh wow wow and yeah and then within that interview that was like you said one of the few times you ever brought the fact that you you don't think of Dylan in terms of lyrics, right? Like, I think there's some, there's some quote I, I could pull, pull it up real quick is like, let's see, it's like, yeah, I feel like I'm one of the weird Dylan super fans who spends a lot of time thinking about him and basically ignores the lyrics. I mean, nothing against them. I just don't spend much time analyzing them. I don't even know them in some cases. 
the music, the sound, the melody, the performance, all that is way more why I'm into Bob Dylan than why so many other people are, which is, which is lyrics. Um, would you be open to expanding on that? Because you know, I also, I love, you're right. I love the sound, his voice, the melodies, um, the history, you know, where it comes from, but like, can you expand on your relationship to lyrics and in, in relation to Bob and also just lyrics in general and how you write about music? Sure. Yeah, I know. I, it was funny after that ran, I feel like there's like a hidden subset of Dylan people like me and they like came out of the woodwork to be like, oh, me too. I don't, but, but yeah, but I'm sure that they're, they're, I'm sure we, I should say are the, are the minority. And it's not that I think Dylan's lyrics are overrated. It's just the way my brain works. I just don't. Yeah. If I'm listening to a song, the lyrics don't register and I can listen to it 50 times and maybe by time 50 I'll get a few lines or maybe I'll have the chorus because it repeats wow. a few times yeah but like it just doesn't it doesn't click with me I'm very invested in the music um and the sound and the performance element but it is funny that like the guy who wins the Nobel Prize for his right. lyrics yeah he's yeah. like the greatest lyricist probably ever I sing the songs of experience like William Blake you know I just they just it, like with everyone else it just doesn't click um but I yeah. do think I do think that gives me a slightly different angle because sure, I'm so sure. focused on the musicianship and the sounds and stuff you know a lot so many Dylan people Dylan writers it's all lyrics basically yeah yeah it's like um, a so I'm coming at it from a, a fairly different angle I think than a lot of the other people yeah, and I should also, there's a story I want to relate to is that like for many years, I also didn't think of music in terms of lyrics. I, you know, most basically from like birth, you know, or whatever when I started listening to music at all. And then until 21, like um when I had, you know, the first episode of, of Mania or Awakening, whatever you want to call it. Um mm -hmm. like, yeah, it just didn't register. Like I would hear the music and sounds would kind of, you know, I love it. I would just be into it. But then after the awakening, like it kind of it was almost like a sheen had like come off my ears or my my you know, third eye or whatever where like I would I would be like oh wait there's like real poetry there's real words are being said I would kind of go through the history of what songs were important to me and, and seem like there was a reason why they were important like you would have a, an album of like 10 songs that were all you know like a Weezer album would all be like 10 songs that were all the same basic like melodies uh -huh. and like you know sounds you know and then with the songs that I love out of that album like had some meaning for my particular autobiography more than maybe other people's. Um, and then, you know, there was a period where that went away when I started medicating and, and the, the, the quote unquote illness. And then, you just kind of got back into a more, uh, I don't know, just dampened neurotic uh, perspective. And, and then it wasn't until 35 again that that kind of reopened that, that appreciation for lyrics and that kind of, I guess, you know, some would say over obsession or infatuation with them. But have, has, there, has there been periods in your life where, you know, lyrics, maybe, maybe you've already answered, but has there been periods in your life where, where lyrics have meant something to you? Maybe like something's gone on in your life personally? you know, like, and you're like, oh, wait a second, this is hitting, or is that not part of your experience? I don't need to put this on you, but just, just curious, just curious. I mean, probably not, there have been instances more than periods, I guess I would say. It's, yeah, I can, yeah. I can 
come up with a few lyrics that meant something to me at a certain point, you know, in my autobiography, it's not like there's none. Um, and you know, the funny, a funny, another funny thing, I guess, is that the first musician I ever got obsessed with, you know, in middle school was weird Al Yankovic. Oh, kind of, wow. kind of and of course the interesting thing right. there is he again is is the whole point is lyrics right the music sure, is sure. the same as the nirvana yeah, song yeah. or yeah, the nelly yeah. song or whatever right the music is just identical the lyrics is the only thing he's changing <laughs> um <laughs> So I, I tend to love these uh, these people who are very lyrics forward and then not to pay that much attention to the lyrics. But yeah, but yeah, I, I sort of I think I've mostly always been this way. Like I say, there's there's periods. I remember early on when I was first getting to Dylan, every breakup I had, I was like, oh, this is the theme song for the breakup. But really, it was only just the title. <laughs> I didn't really. <laughs> I don't know if any of the other lyrics connected at all, but oh, the, uh, the title seemed relevant. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna call this. You know, yeah, blood so on the tracks. There's songs about breakups, so I guess I'm supposed to. When something's not right, it's wrong. You're gonna make me lose when you go. But right, right. Get into long. it. Yeah. Interesting. There's also, there's also some songs that he writes that are like the titles are actually like ironically the opposite of of uh you know what they're about. I'm sure I'm sure my my the connections out, you know, you you in in your Substack, you make these deeper connections. Mine were, I'm sure, very surface level, and, well, and in some cases, totally wrong because the, as you say, in many of them, the title is somewhat misleading. And yeah, but then I, I, think I, I think I get so deep that I, I lose the thread sometimes, and people are like, "I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is this, you're making too much out of this." Like. Yeah, this is not real. So I, I think it goes that goes both ways. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, we mentioned the Weird Al Yankovic thing. And I, I had, I started reading your cover book, uh, last night. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah. So Weird Al's also, you're right. He's a cover artist in a way, but he's another version of cover artists. He's like a parody artist. Can you, can you talk briefly of, if you don't, I mean, about your, your cover work? Cause I, I found it fascinating, the intro about the history of covers and um like so did you get into it via weird, weird al then is that is that part of your origin story for actually no i got into it via bob dylan um what happened was how i got into covers because you know i've been i've been dylan fan forever but only writing about dylan pretty recently um okay. i've been you know covers i've been run, writing about for 15 years and but i did get it for through bob dylan because when i was in my freshman year of college in um what would that have been like oh five uh, Dylan was had this radio show on uh, XM Radio. It was called Theme Time Radio Hour, and every week right. he would play a, play a set of songs on a theme. And one of the early ones, the theme was summer. And he, so I don't remember what the other songs were, but one of them was a version of the Gershwin song "Summertime," yeah. which you know I know that song "Summertime" and "Living Is Easy." Everyone knows that song. But the version he played was by this 60s soul artist named Billy Stewart. And it's fast and it's got drum solos and they're scatting and it's just this party song. And it's like, I'd never heard any version of Summertime like this before. Summertime. And the 
usually it's very slow and languid. Um, And I remember sitting there being like, I didn't, I literally didn't know you could do this to a song. Like the lyrics are the same, but everything else is so different. And that was the first cover. I didn't, I don't even know if I would have known the word cover then, but that was the first cover I heard where I was like, what's going on here? And so that sort of sent me down the rabbit hole of looking for other versions that change the music so dramatically. And actually, as I'm saying this aloud, I'm connecting it back to what we were just talking about, which is that lyrics sort of don't matter in a cover version in the sense that they're the same. Everything else is different and the lyrics are the same so that's in most covers there are exceptions but in most covers you can kind of put the lyrics to the side because that's the one thing i mean even legally usually you can't change them that's the one thing that is not going to change so you can all but ignore them and focus on everything else so maybe that's why i gravitated towards it and some of the examples i also not even though i asked that question i remember reading that part and i actually listened to summertime on the way home from work last night the that that version that, that, that that cover but you also talk about how like What's kind of unique about covers is that they are the same lyrics, but then the way that people sing them will bring out different elements of the lyrics themselves and kind of change the tone of the song that you like. This in this way, it's from languid to you know exuberant about summer, you know, in the way that summer is actually fun. You know, um, can, can you and we also in the prep for this conversation, you were like, you know, Dylan Dylan never had a number one song, which I didn't know. I didn't, is that is that what you said? And that the actual his. Uh, uh, not it, not he, none of his own recordings of his songs topped right. the charts. Wow, um, we having a little minor issue that the Zoom that um is on my account that's upgraded, so I'm gonna have to pop out and pop back in. With, with, with oh the, yeah, I, know, I I I got the free Zoom, so I know that I know the ten minute. Well, uh, but I have I have the ten real minute game. Oh, it must I, be on the I, wrong I one. Why I did that? Um, so what do you you have the free one and you just kind of pop it back in and out when you do it? I try well. I try to avoid doing my interviews with Zoom for just that if it's like a, a semi, you know, a somewhat famous musician or something, I was feeling no, not embarrassed. good. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> not super embarrassing. Yeah, but I actually have. I pay for Zoom, which is why. Yeah, you must have just set it up on the wrong. Uh, um. Yeah. Let me. Uh, um, you, want, you want to call this a breaking point and pop out and just yeah, I'll pop link? back out for a second. Sorry about that, Ray. I'll be right back. Uh, I don't mind. I'll see you in a minute. Okay. Kiss me up before you go. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I think I think what happened was we were talking about. So we maybe we have to just go back and just say that. So Dylan, you you were telling me in the prep call that Dylan has never had a number one song. Right. Verify that. Yeah. Yeah. So under his own recording, he has never topped the main Billboard chart. However, there have been a number of covers of his songs that have gone to number one. Yeah. Um, you know, he which speaks to how much covers of his song helped to make him famous, really. Wow. You know, he's he does blowing in the wind, and it's sort of this folky favorite or whatever. Then Peter Paul and Mary covers it, and it's this huge national hit. Oh, interesting. Blowing in the wind. 
And that's sort of, you know, same with All on the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix. Um, even in the 80s, or even actually, forget the 80s, even into like something like Make You Feel My Love, you know. He released that on an album that came out in 1997. It wasn't, it wasn't a single. It was just a regular album cut. But then pretty soon, you get Garth Brooks and Billy Joel, and then most importantly, Adele, cover it. And they make this song the standard that at this point, the way it's going, like it in, in 50 years, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the best known Dylan song. And it'll be purely from the covers, huh? not from Bob's, Bob's own recording. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would argue, no offense, that I think I think Adele, Adele's version won't be the most well-known personally, but I, I can at least see your point that like, you know, definitely the Peter Ball and Mary thing, right? Where it's like, he could have like fallen off into obscurity if it wasn't propelled then, you know, by the, the, the culture that he was in kind of elevating his his work through, you know, playing and playing it basically too. I mean, is that part of what you're saying that like, yeah, and it's more than just, I mean, I, I, I see your point on the Adele thing, and you might be right, because I think it's, or and certainly Peter, Paul, and Mary, who at this point are not, yeah. who will, I don't think young no, people are listening to Peter, gonna, Paul, and Mary, yeah. but it's, it's not, so it's not any one individual cover, even Make You Feel My Love, I don't know if Adele's will, you know, it'll probably be, Adele's huge, so anything she does it will, I think, remain big, but it's almost that that song just keeps getting covered right yeah, every year right. there's like right. 10 more very famous a-list level artists doing this and at the lower tiers every singing competition show people are doing make you feel my love on youtube when i when i wrote my i actually can't remember what i was writing one of the books i think i searched make you feel my love youtube and i uh-huh. searched for just the 24 hours and there were something like 20 new covers of make you feel my love that had been posted within the past 24 hours oh whoa. the moment i searched and I'm sure that's true. Anytime you search, make you feel, do it right now. Make you feel my love. If you're listening or curious, make you feel my love cover filter 24 hours. There's going to be a bunch of new ones. It's that sort of song. It's like an American standard now. these covers or at least many of them do they even know it's dylan who knows i I, honestly you know i didn't and i'm and i also you know i don't think i think it's showing that i don't know you know how like how popular some of these some of these covers can get yeah in that way where like yeah i have no idea that this adele thing was happening that you're that you're describing that there's that she's so popular to me like dylan is like way more popular influential but you know maybe Maybe you're right. Maybe like at this point, people don't, you know, know about that. That are certainly more influential. But like, if yeah. you go, you know, I'm sure if you compare Adele's streaming numbers to Bob Dylan's streaming numbers, Adele's are, oh, those are higher. She'd blow, yeah. she'd blow them away.
Yeah, interesting. No question yeah, and, and that kind of gets to the next question. It was like, you're you kind of have these these niche of artists, you know. So you do the the Bob Dylan Substack, and then you moved into Tom to Tom Waits uh, Substack, and and you had the Leonard Cohen uh, Thirty Three and a Third, which is you know about his tribute album uh, that people put together of songs of his, and um, you know, how would you describe these kind of like three three artists, like? You know, what is there like a the a reason that they became you became attracted to them and, and their niche? I mean, we, we talked about a couple of things in the prep call, but like what would you say is like what brings them all together in your mind for why they why you like them? So I think I mean the baseline, which we can almost skip over because it's understood, is that they're great songwriters, right? But there's a lot of great songwriters. Um, so getting even more specific than that, looking really specifically at Dylan Waits and Cohen, they're great songwriters who have slightly, I don't know what the word is, inaccessible or divisive uh, deliveries and specifically right. voices, right? Really, um, Leonard yeah. Cohen. Yeah. Leonard Cohen has the famous line, I was born with the gift of a golden voice, which is like clearly meant to be a laugh line because obviously he was not. I'd like to try to yeah. Tom Waits, you know, is like an easy impression you can do to make your friends laugh because he sounds so nuts. I mean, Dylan, same thing, this sort of nasal, nasal yeah. thing. And again, in, in, in sort of all of those cases, actually, just like we were talking with Dylan, it's true for Cohen and Waits, too, that their songs have become more popular by covers with people with more broadly palatable uh, voices. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. And, and singing abilities. So, you know, it's not like I, I'm, I'm retrofitting this explanation. It's not like I literally went out and was like, hmm, who else? Do, who oh, else has okay, a bad so singing voice? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but just kind of like unconsciously, I've been attracted to it. Interesting. Well, the, and, well, yeah. and the thing is, and I'll, I'd say this about Dylan, but it, I think it's true, probably for all of them, maybe with the exception of Cohen, who kind of has more of a speaking delivery. But even in that way, they're all great singers, right? I, I, I always say Dylan is a great singer with a terrible voice. And what I mean by that is that obviously nature has not blessed him with sounding like Frank Sinatra or something just naturally, yeah. but the way he uses his instrument to deliver lyrics, to deliver melodies is, is Sinatra-esque. You go to my and you linger like a haunting refrain. It's like really powerful and he yeah. really makes it work for him. I mean, Tom Waits is an even more extreme example. I mean, his voice is insane. He sounds like, you know, there are all these cliches of like, he sounds like someone who smoked, you know, a thousand cigarettes before he started. <laughs> but he, he uses it as this percussive, yeah. spooky, aggressive, like it sounds amazing when, he's, when he does it. Yeah, yeah. Friends, though, I love their music days. They, they'll be like, I tried Tom Waits, I just can't do it, you know? And, uh, and like, that happened with me. The first time oh, okay. I heard Tom yeah, Waits. Yeah. Uh, I, so it, was, it was through Dylan. I was, I'd be, it was in college again. I'd become a Dylan fan. And, you know, 
I don't know, something said, if you like Dylan, check out Tom Waits. Sure. I downloaded Rain Dogs, which like is his most famous album. I literally made it a song and a half in and was like, hell no. This sounds awful. Yeah. And it was like a, a year or two before I gave him another shot. And, and then the second time it took. No, I don't know if I said this, but also for me too, like when I discovered Dylan, it was like a greatest hits album and you know, when I was younger, you know, growing up and I didn't take, it was like, I tried it and I was like, no, like this is like, not, not for me. I'm not the one you want, babe. You know, and then I went back to like yeah. the Beatles, I think, and uh, you know, stuff like that. It was just, it was, it was too, yeah, the, the voice. Going, you know, going back to what you said about his his voice and how he doesn't have a Sinatra voice and he doesn't have the most beautiful voice, but what he uses with what he has makes makes him such a star. And I think reading through the interviews, everybody would you would ask about you know his guitar playing or his piano playing or, or you know how he led a band. And I feel like all the people were always like, even though he's not a technically skilled like virtuoso on guitar, the way he has rhythm the way he, you know, kind of understands the American tradition of, of all the, of the folk. And rock and roll. Like, it make it like all adds together into a, 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 a whole that's so much greater than the parts that it's like, he is just an, like, he is one of the best guitar players, even though technically he's not. You can speak to that, like uh, how you're seeing all these kind of reverential responses to a relatively unskilled player. Yeah, that's been really interesting, especially from people who I think most people would say are significantly more skilled on their instruments right, right. than Bob Dylan is is on his. And they're all kind of amazed. You know, he's not Clapton or Hendrix. He's not going to just whip out this insane electric guitar solo where he plays behind his head or whatever. There's this interesting section in his book, Chronicles, where he actually goes into fairly specific detail about his guitar technique. And like the details are a little hard to... It, for me at least to figure out, but it's, he's always talking about the rule of threes and how it's just different, this different approach than anyone else is taking. And even if you can't like me quite understand what he's saying, the point is that like, he thinks about it a lot and right. the system he's using is not the same system that your guitar hero is going to use. Huh, um, and I think that's to some degree what these musicians are keying in on. Like they're used to, you know, some flashy yeah. guitar player and he's not going to do that. But what he's going to do is very rhythmic based and it's very unpredictable. And he's never going to go the way you think he's going to go. Huh. And again, kind of like what I was saying with this concert up top, sometimes he falls on his face, right? For he's living kind right. of out there, including yeah. on the guitar. And sometimes it's honestly pretty terrible. 
but <laughs> in a way in a way that someone you know yeah. Clapton or something he's not going to give you a terrible guitar this is never going to happen right, right um but bob's really pushing it and sometimes he comes up with these things that no one else could come up with and and sometimes it's uh fairly unlistenable yeah i'm interested in that yeah i think i want to go i want to say two things for first first is you know, the rule of three i mean you didn't prefer this but that's also a comedy thing you know there's a the rule you know the rule of three like the joke is on the third the third list of three things and then oh interesting and then also in spiritual stuff like the rule of three is that you know you have these binaries and then people get caught in the binaries and then you actually need like a a third element that you know, kind of a dialectic like leads to a third synthesis that then is kind of the way forward in a situation i mean do you remember at all kind of what he's talking about in terms of the rule of three in in that in a more detail way? I know we don't we don't put this in. Another thing, I, it's like when I do these podcasts, I think I'm not sure I say I'm Dylan, but like I, you know, I have a weird voice. I think people people always comment on my voice. I'm you know pretty erratic uh, in general as a lifestyle sometimes, and also <laughs> on this podcast we've been taking a lot of weird takes. And even this question, I'm rambling now, but like, can you speak to the rule of three in any more depth, or are you not comfortable doing that? I don't know if it's something you can offer. I, I can't really speak to a name or depth because like I said, I can't, I'm interested in it, but don't really understand it. I've actually yeah, sort of tried yeah. to figure it out. I play a little guitar just around the house and I can't quite yeah. figure it out. There is, if people are interested, I would say there's this amazing site called dylanchords.com, which is about what it says. It has very good versions of better than you're going to find anywhere else of Bob Dylan's right. chords. But the guy is like a real music theory guy in a way I'm yeah. not. You have an interview with him. He actually, yeah. yeah, I did an interview with him. Um, and he, I don't think we talked about this specifically, but he did a whole article where he like literally went through this somewhat inscrutable chapter about rule of threes from Bob oh, Dylan's cool. book. And he like actually, like he put some tabs to it and kind of tries to figure it out. Oh. And like I say, music theory wise, it's like a little over my head, but it, 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 it's interesting as sort of a novice to read about and great, great. have someone yeah. who actually knows what he's talking about try to try to figure out that this passage that like so much of bob is enigmatic and somewhat inscrutable yeah and and he started a, a substack too right kind of like inspired by yours in a way right like he has yeah that too yeah yeah he just started one i don't know six months ago maybe it's like he does like month i think it's one issue a month and they're very they're really interesting and they're again sort of music theory based in a way mine or not just because i don't know that stuff yeah like really get into granular of key changes and um yeah stuff like that this is so this is not a question we prep for but is there a dylan writer that has inspired you you know like there's you know people talk about grill marcus i just read the david remnick you know piece in the new yorker where he kind of talks about some of the history of of the music writing about dylan and you know his own experience experiences with dylan is there is there some you know music writer who has inspired you in your relationship with dylan or just music writing in general yeah, uh, there's there's one. I mean, I've I've read all of them, and uh, I like plenty of them. But the one really is this guy named Paul Williams. Paul Williams is like one of the OGs of music journalism. He founded the magazine Crawdaddy, like right around the time Rolling Stone was founded in the mid '60s. Wow. Okay. But he spe the specific angle with him is that he wrote this trio of books called Bob Dylan Performance Artists, and the angle on those is very the way he does it is very different but the sort of place he's coming from is very similar whereas he talks little to none about the lyrics yeah and as the title says it's performance he's talking about both live performance like i do but also studio performance right. but really the sound how bob is singing what the musicians are doing goes into a lot of depth he writes about like tons of shows like from bootlegs you know he'll go song by song through some bootleg really listening to the musicianship and like 
you know, it's, he, did, he got three books out of this and they're like amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's more of a critic in that way than I am. Like he's not doing any interviews. He's not reporting in that sense. It's really sort of like review type stuff, but very smart. He's a hell of a writer. And just the angle where he's saying, you know, he's sort of defending Bob as a, as a performer. He's not just, and this is yeah. my line too. He's not just like a guy who writes really good lyrics, but boy, you don't want to listen to him sing them, you know, which is to some degree, like the popular perception that yeah. has been forever. Um, but he's like, no, like this guy, he's a good, yeah, he's a good songwriter, but like as a performer, nah, he's, he's second to yeah. none. Yeah. Um, that, that, that leads into kind of the next question is like, you know, so it seems like you've been to a lot of performances of, of Bob Dylan. Is there, you know, is there any, thing that sticks out recently um yeah maybe you could speak to the general idea of you seeing bob live and what your experience has been like sure um i'll maybe give you one or two um the first one obviously i should talk about my first show just because i think that's interesting and ties into some of what we've been talking about the first time i saw dylan was in march of 2004 um my junior year of high school uh, i was living in chicago and i my dad took me my dad wasn't it was it was my idea, my dad wasn't a big fan, but you know, he knew Bob from the sixties. Yeah. And I, I think I'd heard some, a couple records he had sitting around the house. So I was like, yeah, I don't know. I saw the paper that he was coming. And so I went to the show, not knowing a lot. And I was kind of, I, the funny thing is, I didn't, I'm not even sure I liked the show, but I was very interested in the show for the reasons we were talking about. It was so different than anything else I'd ever seen. Even the songs I ostensibly knew, I didn't even recognize <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and afterwards, I was so interested in it that I downloaded, I didn't know that bootlegs were a thing that existed, but I went to uh, Kazaa. Oh, yeah. Kazaa, that dates right, this. Right. I went to Kazaa yeah. and I downloaded the studio version of every song he played. Oh, wow. um, some of which it, I would find out later were, were hits, some of yeah. which were new, some of which were just obscure random things from the 70s. Um, and I, you know, as with, as you probably remember yourself from those days, when you downloaded a song, like the investment of, you know, it took an hour. So the investment was such that you listened to it a lot. Cause like that was your MP3 for the day. You know, yeah. <laughs> no one had been able to use the phone lines cause you were downloading <laughs> one Dylan song. <laughs> so, so I listened to that playlist a ton and that's kind of how I became a fan. And then I started seeing more shows, mostly around the, around the Midwest. Yeah, um, we also committed a crime, so it's like I I really have to. Do this <laughs> song. Yeah, it's a good thing. I, luckily, I wasn't. I didn't get into Metallica, or I really could have gotten in trouble. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so then yeah. I started seeing him a bunch, um, and you know, obviously got the records. But you know, that it's again, I missed. I'm not a deadhead, but like, there's that element to it in terms of yeah. both the live experience and in terms of the fan base, where people like go to a lot of shows and yeah, really pay attention to what changes yeah. from night to night. And there was, at the time, when I first got into it, and this was sort of part of the story, is there was this thing called the Dylan Pool. And it was basically a, a bet, not for, not betting for money, but just betting for fun of what songs he would do every tour because he would change his set list up so dramatically. And like oh, thousands wow. of people would enter at the start of a tour. <laughs> I think he's going to play um, Cats in the Well a bunch. I think he's going he's gonna to play Joey, you know, from the Desire record this tour, even though he hasn't in 20 years. Yeah. Um, and so wow. this sort of gamification uh, okay. angle of it okay. I was I was very interested yeah. in I'm, I'm gonna jump in for a second just because because you mentioned the dead and that was actually the first show I saw of Dylan was in 2003 it was and the funny thing is you know we were I was with some friends at a dead show my first dead show is a dead dead in company with John Mayer last summer and the friend I was with we all had gone to a Dylan show together 
and I and I was like talking about it. I was like, oh, the last time we were in this area, like upstate New York, because we were at camp counselors and you know near there, and we went on like a like a twenty four hour like bender, you know, go to the concert, go back to camp, you know, that one of those things where you're a counselor, and um, you know, and then I was like, yeah, we saw Dylan. He's like, no, we saw the dead, and I was like what? No, we saw Dylan. And he was like, no, no, dude, we saw the devil. We didn't see Dylan. And then we, our third friend wasn't there. We texted him and he's like, it was both of them guys. Like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? <laughs> so we like had this completely different perspective. And I wasn't a dead fan at that time. The dead, like I really love now in a way that I didn't understand then. And, and I think my friend, yeah, my friend might have liked dead more than Dylan then too. So we just saw what we saw, but, um, yeah, do you do you know anything about it? So I think I'm trying to peg when it was. I think it was like around the time you saw him, like 2003 for me. That's when I think I figured it out. Like, yeah, that th- that sounds right. Summer maybe. 03, yeah, summer 2003. So yeah, in like Western year. upstate New York. Do you know anything about that tour or that particular show? Maybe it would have been, it would have been like maybe Buffalo or like Albany or somewhere somewhere in that Western upstate area. Um, I don't know if you know anything about that. To, that air, that air, that that tour that concert. So I don't. I, the tour is sort of interesting because you know D- Dylan played with the. He obviously had a long relationship with Jerry Garcia, but you know they did this Dylan and the Dead tour in summer of 1987, and they released a live album. It's like maybe the worst reviewed, worst regarded <laughs> album of Dylan's entire career. Like it's just like <laughs> widely hated and derided for sounding like Why trash. Why is that? Does the sound is better because they're soloing, or what is what is all the reasons for that? Or just... There are there are many. Um, one, there there's specific reasons. There's general reasons. I think the general reason is that unlike the show you saw where Dylan maybe guested or whatever, but basically yeah, was like playing with his own band. band. Yeah, he yeah. It, with Dylan and the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead were literally his backing band, oh, and which is, right. is sort of in theory. In theory, it sounds right, but actually, you're sort of Dylan can't jam, first of all, right? That's just like not his thing. So uh-huh. you're like taking the Grateful Dead and not letting yeah. them do what they do best, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is yeah. like explore instrumentally. They don't, there's no yeah. solos really. There's no, jam- I mean, there are some solos, but there's no real jamming in the sense that yeah. that's what Grateful Dead fans want. So you're, yeah. so they're just like this backing band. And obviously they're not a tight band. I mean, no one wants them to be tight. So like yeah, sure. they're, they're just being used in, in really the wrong way. This and then beyond weird. that, Dylan apparently, they like Jerry Garcia made a track list for this album that was like, you know, pretty good. Some of the best stuff. And then Dylan himself mixed it and like listened to a bunch of recordings on like the shittiest sounding boombox in the world and just like sort of picked them randomly. And so he just like he picks a record yeah. a performance. Well, I think Joey or one of the songs, he like forgets the lyrics halfway through and they performed it other times when he sang it fine. So it's like, why did you pick the one where you yeah. don't remember the lyrics? <laughs> yeah, that is. Wow. Yeah, he's, um, he's, he's crazy sometimes. I love it. Uh, yeah, and then but anyway, that's eighty-seven. And then, uh, so anyway, I was just, I just think it's funny that you know he's he's stuck with the dead. Um, sure. and yeah, this I think I think Dar- Darian Lake is probably the show you're talking yes, about. That's in, what in it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was Darian Lake. Yep. Um, yeah. So. So I'm I'm kind of I've been kind of prying prying into uh, my own psyche a lot, and it feels like there's some some resistance prying into your psyche. But I'm just curious, like, if we were to do a shuffle, you know, and kind of what I like to do is, you know, set set an intention of like, 
hey, what's going on in my life that I want to have insight into? And then I'll pick a playlist and shuffle and see if there's anything to discern. What do I need to know about, you know, your book that's coming out or what do I need to know about, you know, you know, anything? I don't know. So is there something that maybe you prefer this or not that you like would want some insight into with this huge Dylan playlist? That you sent me this amazing Dylan playlist. I think we should put in the show notes. That's like, not just like the Dylan albums that you can find really easily on Spotify, but it is, how would you describe it? It's this playlist that. It's an insane playlist. And to be clear, I didn't make it. So credit to whoever did, but it's like basically every officially released Dylan track that's on Spotify. So it's every song from every album, of course, but that's just like the baseline. It's also all the live albums or live tracks that are on Spotify. It's all the like outtakes you know he releases these things called the bootleg series that'll be like here's like three different takes of stuck inside and mobile that weren't used on the album maybe one of them is even better so it's like all that stuff i have to pull i have to find it and actually pull it up it's myself also, but i know yeah, it's kind of like, well, it's well, got like a thousand about, or more right yeah it's also like there's stuff that's not even his name that like was him or like people that it's like on their album and then he like kind of like I, oh it. He was like a yeah. guest star on it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. I, would, I remember. I was that going now. through it and like I try to save every Dylan song in my in my like song playlist, the eighty eight thousand song one now, and um, like I was going through it just manually pressing the the love button, you know, in Spotify or whatever, like yeah. Spotify. And there was a lot of them. There was like, oh, I didn't. It's not even saying his name, but yeah, it's in here, so he must be involved in this song in some way. So I know I might have pretty, pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm laughing hearing you talk about this because I'm just pulled it up. There's 1400 songs and uh, uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I may have shot myself in the foot doing this. I'm like presenting myself here as this Dylan expert, but like, because this thing goes so deep, the odds of me shuffling a song and I'm like, I don't know what this is. Like they're not, it's not I, impossible. Yeah, yeah, for me too. No, I mean, I mean, that's what people say too. When they're like, do you know all the songs you're shuffling to? Like, I'm like, no, like I just like put in tons of stuff and then whatever comes up, is just, you know, interesting to, relate yeah because it's like so like if it's on an album i'll know it but like i'm just looking yeah this thing goes so much deeper than just what's on the albums that who knows what it's gonna pull yeah i mean do you think he's played 1400 songs live like uh, like there's probably many songs he hasn't even played live before i mean that's another oh yeah yeah i mean he he, lord knows he's played a lot of songs live he's he's fairly uh fairly versatile in that way but i'm sure plenty of these he hasn't played live yeah um all right well you can set the intention or not. You can say the intention out loud, or you can just like just All shut right, I'm gonna my intention it. is gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna use the book one, but be a little more specific. Um, you know, because the work yeah. my big work thing is the book. And the thing I'm stressing about is I'm I'm not worried about the content. Like I, I'm I mean, I'm a little worried, obviously, but like basically I'm confident I'm gonna make a good book, but I'm self-publishing this book, which I have not I done before. Yeah, yes, and yes, so I'm stressed right. about all the all that side of things because in my previous two books i had publishers do everything for me other than writing yeah. it pretty much yeah <laughs> so, yeah yeah so yeah any, well, that's any the thing we, we talked about this too because yeah well i did some regular publishing and then i really moved pretty much fully into self-publishing and we had some conversations about you know what you're going to do with this book because you had some potential options to regular publish then you were just i'm going to go and self-publish it so yeah yeah let's let's get some insight into yeah, that's a great, great way of handling this. Awesome. All right. So should I hit the shuffle button and just let you know what I what I pull up? Yeah, yeah, just, do it? yeah. Just hit the shuffle and you might be able to if you play it really loud, then the zoom can pick it up a little bit. And then all right, know. let me unplug my headphones then. So that, oh, okay. otherwise you're definitely not gonna hear it. Okay. Can you still can you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you. Yeah. Oh, I'm not uh, all right, just let me 
are on shuffle. All right, here. Let's see if this works. If it if it accidentally plays the first song on the playlist, I'll redo it. But if not, three, two, one, shuffle. Well, now I'm not hearing anything. Can you hear it? I can't, but you, you can <laughs> tell me what it is. Yeah, yeah, tell me what it is. All right, I'm going to do my headphones again. Yeah, go with your headphones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's this, hang on one second. All right, so what the shuffle pulled up is a, fam a not famous version of a famous song. The song is The Mighty Quinn, Come All Without, Come All Within. Um, one of his, actually, speaking of synchronicities, that's another song that's became much bigger from a cover. Manfred Mann uh, covered that song, had a big hit with it. Bob's wasn't a hit. Um, but this is not the album version because this playlist goes really deep. This yeah. is a live version oh, from Bob's. Yeah, but a live, I know, perfect, it's right? A live cover. Yeah. A live version of a song that's famous from a cover. It's a live version from the Isle of Wight, which is a sort of one of Bob's like comeback show. You know, he, uh, he had the motorcycle crash. He disappeared for a few years. And then in 1989, he played this sort of one-off giant show with the band um, at the Isle of Wight in the UK. <laughs> A famous show, and this is a live version. Not sorry, sorry, no, nineteen sixty-nine. Oh, sixty-nine, right, right. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, that was after the motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. Then the basement tapes. So, yeah, looking at the lyrics, like, come all without, come all within. To me, that's like the self-publishing, like ethos and the Substack ethos. It's like, you know, it's just like, you know, you're you know, you're giving away part of your product on Substack for free you know, come all within, you know, come, come, come into this space with me. And then hopefully people will like see the value. And then they're like, you know what, I'm going to contribute, you know, monthly to Ray or, you know, monthly to shuffle synchronicities. And then, you know, then there's, then it grows into the book. And then, you know, cause you started an Indiegogo. I mean, that's how you finance it differently than I did. I usually just use Amazon and then like Amazon takes a portion and they just, you know, print on demand. And then, you know, I don't have to worry about like setting up the cost. Like, you did an actual Indiegogo and got tons of support, right? Yeah, yeah. I just to get some upfront money, you know, because I want to license photos and stuff, and also just get the word out there in advance, you know, because it's like pre-ordering is a little weird if you're self-publishing. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I did an Indiegogo. It's actually about one month into two months right now. Um, it goes till mid-December, and yeah, I hit the goal very within a couple of days. Um, but great. yeah, it's been yeah. Uh, it's been very very satisfying um i'm just looking i mean it's funny doing this because also like i said i don't really know the lyrics but i'm looking them up and maybe one synchronicity is like so this song is is absurdist right like it's got lyrics like uh guarding fumes and making haste and ain't my cup of meat you know just these uh -huh. like weird and like just the weirdness of this song i feel like self-publishing is like a little bit like let's get weird you know it's you're not doing weird. it the normal yeah. way you're yeah, not doing it yeah. the sort of old school 
by the book's way. You're like yeah, kind of going out there. Stepping cues, you know, you're like not waiting for yeah. the year it takes to publish a book. You're like, I could publish this tomorrow. If I, if I was I about to say, it. you're going out on a limb and there's literally a line here, feeding pigeons on a limb. Everybody's out there feeding a pigeon's out on a limb. So there you oh, go. Exactly, yeah. And also like, you're not seeing something like the Mighty Quinn. It's like, guess what? You're like, the Mighty Quinn is like Dylan, right? For you, right? You're like, look, this, look I'm like bringing... Dylan out in a way that you guys haven't seen this version of the Dylan story through these band members that you said like you haven't haven't talked in the way that you, they've shared with you. You know, so I think like, you know, that's what you're promoting promoting when you're promoting the book is. And we have to as self-publishers, right? We have to like do the promotion. There's no publishers who are going to yeah, have that part right. of the angle. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so there we go. That's a shuffle. I mean, I, that's like, I don't know. Does it, what does it make you feel? Does it make you feel like you're doing the right thing with the, with the I mean, or do, what, what does it make you think that you've had that? Is there any insight or is it just kind of like a general or before? What, what, what are you thinking right now? I don't know. I'm you're thinking sure it. <laughs> As you're talking, I was looking through the lyrics. I'm thinking it's a mixed message, right? Because okay. we, we just talked about all the positive things, but here are two lyrics that are not so encouraging. You ready? Okay, okay, yeah. One is, I like to do just like the rest, which is hopefully the opposite of what I'm trying to do. Is not, I'm trying to not do it just like the rest. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm hoping the, 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 in the last chorus, I'm really hoping this doesn't happen when people read my book, is everybody's going to want to doze. Hopefully uh, my book will not make people want to doze. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I don't know, man. It's, it also says right before that, nobody can get no sleep. There's someone on everyone's That's toes. True. You're so right. Like, I think he's, it's always, yeah, there's some sort of like binary where he's like, yeah, you're, you're up, really up, up, up. And then you want to sleep and. I don't know. Yeah. Self also, everybody's going to want to doze. Another connection you can make with that line is that I find the mechanics of self-publishing fairly boring. Sure. Like sure. I'm doing, like I'm doing it as an experiment, partly financial because to see if I can make more money. Um, partly it's nice having the direct connection with readers, but like the actual, like, like for instance, Seth's Indiegogo, I had to spend like probably multiple hours figuring out shipping costs to various countries. And like, I wanted yeah. to jump out of a window yeah. fairly soon. It yeah. was like so confusing wow. slash boring. Right? Yeah. Oh. So, so I've, so part of the self-publishing process makes me want to dose. So yeah, I can I actually, actually I'm putting that into pro column because I can really relate to that. This view moment to put this in, but the, the, I know you're seeing, you're doing hard covers on your own and then you're doing soft covers on amazon right is that what you said that's right yeah yeah but i think you can do hard covers on amazon if you want to avoid that shipping thing i don't know I, the thing is i want to i i've thought of that i'm from what i've read and understand amazon looks fine but these other companies look better and yeah. so kind of it's it's kind of like a compromise like the amazon one will be good enough and it'll be fairly cheap the hardcover one's going to look nicer on your shelf it'll you know be on nicer yeah. paper that sort of thing yeah cool so that's cool. kind of why i that's kind of why i did i'm doing different Got it. Yeah. Um, so um, another, you know, kind of one of the things that happened um, when I, when I, when I went back to do the shuffle, you know, the first one was last week and I talked about how I, you know, deleted this, the sub stack. And then I brought Kiana Fitzgerald who 
along with you has been really, really supportive. And, you know, right after I posted, you wrote, wrote me an email, really kind email. You're like, welcome back, man. Like I, you know, we're like Substack brothers, you know, you've been in the top 10, I've been in the top 25 uh, of the paid list. So I feel like, you know, we just, we should, we should, we should share a connection too. Cause I, last year I calculated how many songs came up from each artist and you were like, it's Dylan, right? Like, and you and you just knew, and I, and it was right. Like Dylan was like yeah. head and shoulders, like above all the other artists uh, in terms of how many times he came up on the shuffle. And this is just shuffled to, not even just the like, you know, times I mentioned, mentioned him, you know, which is even more, yeah, but, um, sure. but, you know, so the live concert was like, actually, you know, and this is where I'm going to kind of talk in a personal way. Um, the live concert was, an, was, a, was a way that was, was the night that I deleted the Substack actually. So it's related to the, you know, I, I said, I, I, I invited you to come to LA. You couldn't do it. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to try to tell a story in this, this new way of like what I'm calling post memoir. I mentioned with Kiana, which is that you're just not going to mention any of the details about other people unless you have their consent. I, I'm assuming I have your consent to say that I invited you to the, uh, yeah. to the concert, yes. but, but I, well, I will say that the person that I did take, um, I'm just gonna use pronouns of they and, and not get into too much details, but uh, they did not know about Dylan at all. You know, really did not know, had heard of them, but did not, did not know them. Um, you know, they, it was in the context of um, someone that I had met recently and it was not exactly dating, but just, you know, it was, it, it was just that kind of maybe potential energy. And um they they were in Santa Monica and the show was at Pantages in Hollywood, which um, is a Hollywood Boulevard, kind of in the middle of the whole thing and uh, the whole mess of that uh, Hollywood and Vine era or area. And um, so I went to pick them up and we had dinner in Santa Monica and it was during a week where something was going on in my personal life that I'm going to share at some point where I was just kind of like ramping up into an episode by dealing with healing. I think a lot of times like mania um is related to healing and, and and if you're doing deep work uh or something's coming up in your life that it, that sparks that healing then you can kind of ramp up and so in that state um it's very it was very different than other times when i wanted to go to concerts and then i'm trying to articulate this as like if i'm late for a concert in the past like my old self before i had a lot of these changes i would be so irritated and anxious and like whoever's with me, it's like, it's a problem for them to be with me. Cause I'm like, we gotta like fucking get to the show. And like, and so we were eating dinner and I, when I'm, when I'm in the manic state, it's like every moment is the same beauty, perfectness. And it doesn't matter where you are. And I think that kind of speaks to like Enneagram seven, like the be here now thing, every moment is joyful. And so it didn't really matter that we weren't going to the show. And you know, the, the, the owner of the restaurant, was like came over and was like, oh, you're going to Dylan? Like, that's going to be, you know, that's like the, my favorite musician. You know, that's the best show ever. And the person was like, oh, okay, well, do you want to go right now? Because we're going to be late. And I was like, you know what? We want to, what do you want to do? They were like, uh, uh, I want to have dessert, you know? So we had dessert and I wasn't, really wasn't irritated. Then we, you know, were driving um, to the show and they were like, I have never heard any Dylan songs, you know? And it's like, the guy was laughing about that. The restaurateur was like, you've never heard Dylan. Like, well, this is like, it'd be the best night of your life. Like you're here at Bob Dylan. And so we're, we're playing songs on the way. I'm playing songs on the way, shuffling like the catalog of Dylan on the way to the show. And they're open to my interpretation of the lyrics at that time, which is something that other people in my life hadn't been, you know, and, 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 and people and the people who read me do, but some people have like, 
unsubscribe right away. They're like, I don't really understand this. I don't know why he's doing this personal, you know, mixture of personal and critical thing and, and why it's so, why it's so autobiographical. And, um, you know, so one of the songs that came on was like, uh, blood in my eyes for you. And, person was like what is this a song about and and I was able to kind of explain it as to me at that time it was you know how we treat people are trying to date you know and people are people are in a romantic or sexual relationship with of like I have blood in my eyes for you and and that can go in various directions and that was part of the work I was doing and that can get into um you know when I'm writing but it was about kind of thinking about how I had dated and and been in relationships and how I wanted that to be different and I remember just kind of crying on the way to the show uh, with with that person because they it was I was it was like what I wanted to be happening even though they didn't want me to be romantic with them that's fine but it was like me knowing that I was okay that I was still feeling feelings but like that it was respecting that person's boundaries and I I know that's a that's a weird thing this era like with these you know consent and stuff like that but I think there's some micro issues of consent that you know men men and other people. Uh, deal with and anyway I'm kind of rambling like usually another Kanye rant here but um so we're running really late we get to the show really fucking late like it is it's so late that they almost don't let us in like they're they're like uh I don't know I guess we can let you in so we we put our phones you know I don't know if you know the you you went to one of the shows like they, they're locking up the phones that takes a long time to lock up our phones the person's confused why they're locking up the phones they don't seem to you know they're like you know, okay, I guess we'll lock up our phones. They're not so happy about that. And so we, we walk into the show and people are like aghast in our, in our, in our aisle. Cause it's like kind of in the middle of the pandemic. is a very small theater relatively. Like if you can, it's mostly for Broadway plays. So you can really see everything pretty clearly, but you know, people are like, how these, you know, there's been empty seats probably irritating these people. Like if I was in the older mindset too, like if I had just been sitting there and seeing like empty seats for the first, like you know, three quarters of the show, I'd be like, who the fuck are these people? And so we walk in and um, the song that comes on, uh, you know, and thank you for indulging me here, Ray, but uh, it's, I've, I've made my mind uh, to give myself to you. And it's the song from the new album. I remember when we went, when I was getting tickets to the show, you're like, you have to listen to the new album because that's, that's all he's going to play. He's just going to play the new album. And uh, that was my favorite song on that new album. I know it's a lot of people's favorite song too. And it kind of hit me in the way that I think it's supposed to peer music where you're not like when I go to concerts, I'll be like, oh, my body is, is aching or this person is in my way or like this is not how I imagined it was going to be played. Just kind of that frustration. And that time when I heard the song, I think it was just like, this is exactly what where I, every, every moment is where I'm exactly supposed to be. This is the perfect place to be. Perfect sound, perfect happening. How is this supposed to be happening is happening this way. And I felt like I was in a movie where like the soundtrack swells and it was like the most real pure moment of music I've I've ever experienced. Listen to the sound of the
the rest of the show is like that. And kind of looking at that song, like I looked at some of the music criticism behind that song and I was feeling, I, I didn't really study this before, but I was feeling what, what they said is that they say it's a song about devotion and it's on like three levels. It's like a devotion to, you know, a romantic partner. I don't think anybody ever Then there's devotion to the spiritual world. devotion to you know the art the, the the community that he's given he's given his art to um do, do you know that song i mean pretty like what do you what what's your feeling on that song yeah yeah the, i mean i know it well he plays it every night and i think there's another interpretation that some people i've seen have which i kind of like which is that it's also a song to his audience like yeah. he's a guy yeah. who's been on tour other than the pandemic basically most of every year for over 30 years now he basically wow. spends his life playing music for people in rooms like the pantages And so I, again, I don't, I can't, I don't know his intentions, but yeah, I yeah. think that's a nice yeah. interpretation that it, like on the surface, you could say it's a love song, right? Fairly simple. Um, but, you know, give myself to you thinking of the you as the audience, as the, as the fans. I'm out of my mind. I Yeah, because he, his, I think that's the thing that I was realizing while I was there that those different levels was like, I've given myself to the spirit. I did write about a person in my life uh, in, the, in, the, in the volume one. And so I, that was in my mind of like how I could treat them better. And that was what made me take down the, the Substack was I was like, okay, reflecting on what I had written in that first year, there was too much about other people that were not me without their consent. Like if I'm really going to give my mind or my, my, myself to not just this person, but to the spiritual world and to the ethical world that that involves, like, it was like human in relationships are, are also art, you know, and that there's not something beyond you know hurt you know, hurting someone is not worth um your art ever you. 
your art is your life. And so, yeah, I just, I, I went home and I just wanted to, I just wanted, needed to take it down right away. And it was really, really impulsive. And I'm, I'm not even really explaining the kind of all the things that happened uh, that well about that show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the thing, the thing that I noticed there too, is that going back to the Royal Albert Hall show. And one thing you brought up was the Royal Albert Hall show is a misnomer. Can you, so can you talk about the history of the Royal Albert Hall show to kind of set up this part of the story that I'm going to tell about my experience at the, at the Dylan Pendage? Yeah, sure. So the show that is known as the Royal Albert Hall show is this very, very, probably his most famous show ever, probably definitely one of the most famous concerts ever by anyone. It is at the end, near the end of this tour, his first tour where he quote unquote went electric. Um, and it, the, whole t- the whole time people were booing and yelling and it was extremely controversial. And, you know, all the folkies were basically very pissed off about him having a loud rock and roll band. And then it all culminates in the show, again, supposedly at the Royal Albert Hall, which I'll get to in a second, but where very hostile audience, people are booing. And then you can hear it very clearly on the tape near the end of the show in between songs, one person loudly very loudly yells out Judas, which is just this great line. It's frankly very clever, even if I think the meaning, you know, the intention (laughs) behind it was, was very stupid. The actual Judas, that's, that's kind of a smart, (laughs) a smart burn. And then Bob, unlike usual, Bob responds. He says, um, you know, he goes, I don't believe you, you're a liar. And then you can hear him off mic say to the band, play fucking loud. And they go into this like Rolling Stone. This is just an absolute barn burner. Anyway, the, it's called the Royal Albert Hall show on bootlegs for like a million years. At some point, someone figures out that, in fact, he, while he did play the Royal Albert Hall, that those shows were several days later. This was, in fact, in Manchester, um, UK, yeah. north, north of London, uh, at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. But it's still known as, quote unquote, the Royal Albert Hall show. Yeah. And it, it's, it's so memorable growing up that that was like the show. I was like, I wish I had been in that show, you know, and I, and I wish I was Bob Dylan at that show, you know, playing. And I also wish I was that guy, like who had been there to yell out Judas because it is so memorable or even to just boo that guy. I wish you just wanted to be at that show. And so when I was, when I was at this show, you know, at the Pantages, like I was feeling like that Dylan was tuned into the mindset that I was in and of like, Every moment's perfect, and you know we're 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 in heaven right now. The kingdom of God is within you, and if you're realizing that, like it doesn't matter what's happening around you, you could be late to a concert. You know, you, the, the friend could be tapping you like, you know, I want to leave now before the concert even over. We actually left before the finale. Uh, and so as we we're leaving, you know, I had wanted to yell out to Bob in that way of Judas. Like I had this kind of impulsive manic mindset to be like, you know, I want to do what this guy Judas did, but the opposite. I wanted to do the positive version of Judas to, to just kind of exclaim to Bob like, and so he could hear me and everybody else could hear me. And just get, they could all understand like how important, you know, what's going on is all the time, not just in that show. And so I was, I, I, right as we're leaving, 
the person is like, you know, can, can we leave early? I have to go, go to sleep, you know, I'll go back to Santa Monica. So, uh, so I'm like, okay, yeah, that's date. I'm like, oh, just generally like, okay, we only saw three songs before this, but that's fine. Like, we'll go. You know, it's really been perfect. I saw all I need to see. Really, I really felt that way, which is weird to say now, but I really felt that way. So as we're leaving, he's introducing the band, right? Because that's what he does. He introduces the band before the final song normally, right? That's something you've written about. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he's introducing the band and he happens to get to the point where he's introducing the, I think he called them the the steel guitar player or something like that, like electric guitar player. Maybe you have a better phrase that you, you know that stuff more than me, but he, and he, as he's doing, he's kind of riffing within the introduction saying something like, and we all know how, uh, you know, uh, uh, how people think about that. And then to me, on one level, it was like the Royal Albert Hall thing, which to be clear is like, he was a folk artist to, to many people, which was all acoustic. And then he went electric and that was what the Judas moment was. And then the second part was to me, it seemed like he hadn't been playing electric guitar on this tour at all. Whereas, and whereas other times he had at least tried because he said that before the pandemic, he tried to play electric guitar a little bit, right? One of your posts. Yeah. He, um, he played electric guitar for a few songs here and there, but for most of the 21st century, he has been on piano. Um, Oh, okay. Okay. So then, so maybe it was just the first thing, which is the Judas thing. And so, but that was all happening literally as I was yelling the thing out, right? As he's talking about the electric the guitar introduction. I yell out like, you know, we're something like, we're all in heaven right now. And it's like, doesn't mean anybody else. And it was, and it was over, no one heard it. No one heard it, but it was me in like my own Judas moment with Dylan and this positive thing. And I think like, I think that like what was helpful was like, seeing later when you wrote about this you wrote about how like the actual world albert hall show you know was totally different in a way that he was like way more positive like he wasn't fighting them in that kind of like fugalistic way that everybody remembers him as like play fucking loud like you you had this really nice quote i i see if i can read parts of it um let's see of, of what he actually said which is like let me see um yeah, he just said, he, the actual Robert Albert Hall song, he says, we're going to leave after this song, and I want to say goodbye to all you people. You've been very warm, great people. You've been very nice people. I mean, you are sitting here in this great, huge place, and believe me, we've enjoyed every minute of being here. And so I think that we've enjoyed every minute of being here. And you added a far cry from, from Play Fucking Loud, which is funny because I'm a far cry. Like, no one heard my, my cry, you know? <laughs> and, like, I think that's the thing is, like, Dylan can be both things. He can be really but he also be really warm and that's something that i think that your interviews capture kind of going back into another quote like there's this interview with this with this guy who went swimming with bob dylan and and they went out and they swam and then he was like oh do you want to go back and 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 dylan says something like and he was like because i want to go keep going swimming forward and, and dylan's like i'll swim there if you if you want to i will you know and and that person used that phrase i will if you do if you will like to kind of sum up dylan and, and then and because we talked about is Dylan like a mystic and I don't know his Christian his Christian re- era um, and you know you 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 sent me this this article that you haven't published about the Christian era because uh, it's very divisive and it's something that came up in the shuffle was Water Down Love was the song that you shuffled to is from the Christian era and that was almost that was almost like the Judas era where people like had a really really rough response to what he was doing 
Can you speak to that? Because I feel like you interviewed a lot of people from that era. What was what was the the vibe of that time? Yeah, it was the most. It, it it really was sort of a recreation of Bob Goes Electric. It's like it's it's sort of funny. Bob Goes Electric in the '66. Everyone's all pissed off about it, but then they sort of everyone realizes they were wrong, and you know, within a few years, everyone's on board. Yeah, and then fast forward what 13 years later and now bob goes christian and not only is he making christian albums but he's doing these tours where he doesn't play a single song Uh, from his pre-christian era you know Uh, you're not getting anything you probably know um and so yeah so people are needless to say this is extremely divisive both the fact that he's not playing old songs the fact that all of his new songs are very stridently in many cases christian stridently you're going to hell if you don't believe what I believe. I mean, he's really sort of out there. Not it doesn't it doesn't last too long like that. But there's you know a year or so, um, and so yeah. So it, you know, I think mu- it's one of these things. Like with so many things, people came around at least musically. You know, I think people think that's some. It's like this amazing, powerful gospel music. Yeah. That I think now everyone loves. You know, I mean, everyone who knows it loves. It's not like these are big hits, but um, at the time, yeah, you got a lot of hus- he got a lot of hostility from the audience who would sort of fight back at them. Yeah, I, I, you know, so I think the gospel era kind of relates to the Kanye uh, podcast I did last week in the sense that, you know, I found out that I didn't know Dylan had a Christian era at all like, until mm-hmm. I went through my own, you know, death of my dad and then kind of connecting with the Holy Spirit element of Christianity, the mystic element of Christianity. And um, so when I listened to those songs, like, yeah, I did kind of, hear some of the more evangelical moments but i also heard a lot of the which is what i would call spiritual moments which and i think dylan has just had so much biblical and spiritual you know lyrics and, and stuff in his in his music but then you know and i don't feel if you, if you feel comfortable talking about this but yeah. we, we, did, we did some prep about you know the relationship between kanye and because and, and and bob because when i found out about bob's christian era that was also when kanye was literally doing his christian era and so those two artists were probably my biggest artists and then myself going through it and I was looking for similarities myself. And so I asked you, do you see any similarities or differences between what what that era was like for Bob and what, 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 uh, what Kanye is doing now? Sorry, you shared a, a post with me that you didn't publish that is kind of related to what we're talking about, this kind of where evangelical Christianity can go in the, in the extreme. Would you mind talking about it? Yeah, so what basically, like I say, Bob's Christian music is basically, to the extent anyone knows it, universally acclaimed. Um, but what's interesting is they did this big box set a few years ago, right? And they put out a number of concerts. But if you actually go back and listen to the bootleg recordings, what, you, what you'll notice is that there are a lot of between song right. rants, you might say, that are all cut out. The concerts are just wonderful <laughs> gospel music, right? Yeah. But then you listen to what he's saying in between the songs, and some of it's a little troubling. Um, you know, so like, generally... And quite a number of shows like i say he's sort of very it's a lot about heaven and hell a lot of stuff from revelations yeah you know a lot of if you're not with me you're gonna burn forever that sort of stuff which is you know troubling enough but you can maybe overlook it a little bit but then there's this one and this was sort of what i wrote the post about that i'll figure out i, I didn't i just didn't get the angle right I'll, I'll figure out how to do it right it better one day but it was the show i was listening to where he sort of talks starts talking about San Francisco and all the homosexuals in San Francisco. And right. because it's Bob, it's like a little confusing. Like it's yeah. a little hard to parse what he's saying, but like, look, the moment you start talking about boy, San Francisco sure does have a lot of homosexuals. It's like, all right, you're on extremely bad territory already. 
And then he's talking about the iniquities not full yet. And he's comparing it to this passage in the Bible where people in this one town, and now he's talking about San Francisco and all the gay people live there. And it's like, holy moly, this is uh, extremely yeah. troubling. So, you know, that's, you know, when you were, when you were talking about your last podcast about Kanye, um, you know, I think there's more differences than there are similarities, certainly. Sure. But this was one thing that did come to mind with Dylan and, you know, Dylan saying something very troubling. Again, a little confusing. It's, yeah. it's like the it's like the sort of thing that people do now where there's like, it's so confusing that there's like plausible deniability, right? You can't right. exactly pin him down on it, but clearly something he, something is bad with his thinking and what he's saying. In that moment, yeah. <laughs> in, that, yeah. in that moment. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's true of kind of the spiritual conversion at times. Like there's like there's a book by Adyashanti where it's like people who go through, you know, those moments and you know, quote unquote enlightenment moments. Like there's a lot of like bad thoughts that come out along with like people think you know people don't realize that you can have an, an enlightening experience within you that changes you for the better, but you can still like have all the shadow stuff come out that is really rough. And I think that. That is what you see with Kanye. I talked about, you know, my own uh, anti-Semitic moments in that June, you know, after I took down the, the Substack, you know, at the Dylan show, I had like some anti-Semitic, you know, comments to friends um, and family. And honestly, also like homophobic things too. I, I didn't talk about that with Kiana, but like there's been times in my life where I've, you know, identified as, you know, queer, you know, or gender fluid, you know, or, or you know, had, had that part of my sexuality expressed in certain ways. And then during that um, mindset of the manic, sometimes I can like be what they call like super straight. Like there's this joke, like people are like, can I just be super straight? Like, can I, you know, not have any element of anything else? And people make, make fun of that on TikTok back and forth. And, and um, so, yeah, like sometimes I'll like go to some of those homophobic moments in my own thought process, the way that I think you're suggesting that Dylan did when he was going through that experience. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was interesting, right? That there's the, the, the Kanye gospel, the Bob gospel led to like a lot of like conservative, painful things for other people. And, and you know, it may be a bit less so for Bob. We don't need to, you know, besmirch Bob too much here. But uh, I think it's just part of the experience sometimes. Um, well, and in both cases, there are these people that it's not, I don't know, a, a nashville country star where if they come out and start saying conservative yes. things right, like right. you wouldn't be that surprised they're probably their audience agrees with some portion of their audience would agree with them it's these both people that are in different ways um thought of as progressive you know kanye yes. musically yeah was at the forefront of yeah. you know so much music for so long bob dylan and musically and and politically even though he sort of pushed away from that he certainly has been identified with progressive causes since the 60s so having yeah. people like this or even kind of being like George Bush doesn't care about black people during the Katrina thing, which was like yeah, that's, yeah, traumatizing, you know, at that time, and people really were like mm -hmm. he's on the on the on the edge here, saying some some good stuff. So, yeah, yeah, it's um, I think I think Dylan's one of those artists who there's so many versions of him. You know, he's just that's like his thing is like he's like I'm just gonna com completely evolve and let it let it be who I am. Whereas other artists will just they're just one thing consistently, like the Stones, right? They're just they've been the stones like through every era, you know? Yes, right. Not just playing live, but also the songs they write and what they're, what kind of music they're making. Um, if the stones make an album next week, it's going to sound like the stones for, for better or worse. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I feel like we're pretty in depth there. I don't know if we have any, 
thing more. I guess I have to do a shuffle. I'm sorry. I'm uh, ranting here a little bit, but uh, oh yeah. So yeah, going back to the show, you 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 we talked about it. Um, that I went to the third of the three shows in LA. And you were like, oh, the first two he ended. Because I was like, what did he end on? I, was, I never got to see the uh, the last song. And you're like, oh, which one did you go to? Because you, the first two uh, Hollywood shows, he, he ended on what song? It was... it was uh, friend, friend of the Devil, he friend did. Because he had just played in, I believe, Oakland, I believe, like the night before, like near where the Grateful Dead, you know, their headquarters. So he started doing that and he, he kept it for a few of the LA shows. Yeah. And so that's funny because Dad and Dylan was who I saw, and also Friend of the Devil. Like if you if you look at those lyrics, like it's all about like the life of crime, and like if you start leading that life of crime, like it's hard to get out of. Uh, like part of the experience with that person was just walking down Hollywood Boulevard. That person was very afraid of, I mean, have you been to the Pantages? Have you been to like Hollywood and Vine? Like not, I haven't, I haven't spent much time in LA. I've been once or twice, okay. but I don't yeah. think I saw any shows. Yeah. So Hollywood and Vine is like, you know, the famous place, but it is rough because it is just all the people that it's like a David Lynch movie. You know what I mean? Like David Lynch version uh, of Hollywood where it's like, mm-hmm. People are like on drugs or they're like trying to, you know, be famous with like a Superman outfit, you know, stuff like that. And so like that person was like very, very afraid of walking down and, and so it mm-hmm. feels like friend of the devil. And, and then in that state, you kind of feel like a hell and heaven thing that, that I think Dylan's talking about sometimes where like you can see the people are possessed by the devil. I'm not saying that literally, but like they're like under drugs or they're like, you know, coming on to you in weird ways if you're, you know, and um, mm-hmm. so I was kind of guiding this person and I had this belief that if you just talk to them as a human being, like no matter what they're saying, like it's, it's okay. Cause we had these, we had some weird experience where people were like approaching us and even right outside the show, there was someone who was super Jewish. who was like saying that, you know, that uh, almost in the way the opposite of like a evangelical Christian, but like evangelical Jewish person, which is, which is strange. Like usually Jews, don't do that. They're not trying to convert people. They're, they're, they're actually trying not to have yeah. people get converted to that. But mm-hmm. uh, um, I mean, even that's probably controversial to say, but uh, it's just kind of how it works. The conversion is that it takes a long process to do, whereas Christianity is a lot quicker. But um, so yeah, Friend of the Devil the first two nights. And then I asked you, so what do they play in the third night? And then what, what was it? Can you, can you say it? It was uh, Every Grain of Sand. In the Is how he closes most of these shows yeah which is how he, so he's been closing most of these shows every grain of sand which is from uh sh- the first gospel it's album, from right? uh shot of love the same yeah. album as watered down love same albums watered down love another synchronicity
And another synchronicity is I've been writing the graphic novel about We Bought a Gun and um, I've been putting some music into it, just kind of some moments where the character's listening to music. And there's this moment where the one of the characters is just like really lost and doesn't know what the future's gonna hold. And I just was like, I'm gonna shuffle my whole playlist right now and see what it is. And whatever it is, I'm gonna put it into the, the book. I was just like, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm just gonna try it. And lo and behold, this, this before we even talked, this is like a couple months ago, months ago now. Yeah, it was Every Grain of Sand by Bob Dylan. And it was like the perfect song. So I put some lyrics of Every Grain of Sand into, you know, this, uh, this, this graphic novel. Cause it's just, the song is like, you know, wherever we are, where there's a God kind of has us a purpose for us in a way to me, or, or, you know, you're, you're within his, his hands in a way, or their hands or the universe's hands. And it's more complicated than that. We can pull it up the lyrics, but. Then onward in my journey, I come to Um, so I just thought that was all really interesting that I missed that song yet it became part of this year uh, and then ho hopefully my work in the future and so yeah I think what, what I'll do now is I'll just I'll do a shuffle and um, you know I could shuffle that Dylan playlist but I think it'd be more curious to just shuffle everything because I just had this kind of thought that somehow it'll be Dylan but it maybe it probably won't be now that I'm forcing the universe to do something that you know <laughs> But uh, I got to get off this other playlist for a second. So that made a noise. That's not it. Uh, okay. So I'm going to just do a just shuffle. And we'll see what comes up. Uh, here we go. And uh, it's taking a while with the Zoom. With Keon took a long time with the Zoom, but we'll see what if it just does it. It's still taking a while. Yeah, the intention is... What does Dylan have to say to me at this time? Even, even either through his own songs or through someone else's. I think we're all, you know, when people put too much credit to Dylan, it's like he's from a tra tradition, and you know, everybody is as good as Dylan, even, even if they're not literally as good as them. Okay, so we got a song called. Can you hear the song? Uh, no. Wait. Yeah, now I can. So. It, it's called Concrete Reservation by Syl Johnson. Do you know that song? Maybe I don't know the song. I know the name Syl Johnson. What else does he do? Because Concrete Reservation was remixed into like a rap song. If you, because I, I know when you look up songs, like there's also people list covers, but they also say like who sampled this. Like I think that's another you know, element of cover songs in a way. But Concrete Reservation by Syl Johnson was definitely re remixed. He did. I, here's why I know the name is that he did one of the one of the chapters in my first book was on "Take Me to the River," and I was primarily focused on the Talking Heads version. 
of the Al Green song. But another hit version right around the same time was by Syl Johnson. So he he came up in passing. Interesting. In my first book. So it's saying funky smell in the midnight air, a woman crying because her child got lost somewhere. Neighbors upstairs had a fight. They had a fight because someone's old lady stayed out too late last night. Um, it's a concrete reservation here in the ghetto. It's a bad situation. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of like about you know the rough, rough situation. Um well, you were just talking about Hollywood and Vine being I mean, kind of yeah. a, ba- a bad situation. I would say that, like, yeah, like, that was the experience of Hollywood and Vine was, it was a concrete reservation. You're right, dude. That is so true. You want to help these people in a way when you're in that manic state? You want to be like, well, I, I'm immune to whatever state they're in. I can kind of pacify them and help them and but when you're with someone who's not in that state, it's very frightening to them. You know, when I was in, in other people in my life, when I've been in that state, not just this person. And I've been like, you know, we can help this person. Like, you know, one time, you know, someone was, their car was stuck outside of our apartment. People had someone I was living with at the time. And um, they were like, we, we don't have enough money to call a, a tow truck. So they're, they just had to wait for hours for their friends to bring a tow truck. And I was like, you know what, let's just get AAA. And the person that I was with was just, you know, we, I don't want you to use our AAA to help these people. And I think that's just a mindset sometimes where people don't want to go on a limb to help people who are in really bad straits. And whereas the manic mindset, you want to do that to an extent where you can almost do too much um, for better or for worse. But uh, even, even just this conversation, it's like, I feel like I'm uh, sharing probably too much, even though I'm trying to be ethically post-memoir and, um, I hope I, I hope I cover enough with you in this and that we can use enough of this to make it a good podcast. I know when we first started, you're like, I'm probably not going to edit. I, I want to edit this because I, I, I don't want to listen to it all over again, but, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if we censored things where you're like, you know what, this one, I'm going to have to listen to Dave because, uh, no, I'm good. You're good. He's good. Up to you. You can use whatever you want. You can use whatever you want. All right, cool. Um, yeah, man. Well, Okay, so you know, we're learning. This is me podcasting. We're learning. Uh, and uh, what else is there to say? I mean, the main thing is like, look, like Bob Dylan's been important in so many people's lives. You're just doing the service for all these fans. And so I want to thank you from that level, you know, as a fan and 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 seeing what you're doing. And and then um I want to wish you well in the self-publishing world. I just I I I think it's gonna be a success because you have such a community already in there. Like um, so yeah. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, and <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for your support uh, of the project. Thanks for your help with self-publishing, which I'm sure I will uh, be drawing more on as I as I get further into the weeds. First, I have to actually now I'm in the finish the finish writing the book. So that, so I'm putting self-publishing on the side burner until I actually have the content ready. But I probably will in two or three months. It's pretty oh. close to done. Oh, pretty close. So, well, um, that is good. Yeah, great. Yeah um so two or three months look out for it what's the title again it's uh, it's gonna be yeah pledging my time conversations with bob dylan band members how'd you get that title 
So Pledging My Time is the title of a Dylan song from Blonde on Blonde. Um, and it just, you know, it kind of seemed apropos of what these musicians are doing, pledging yeah. their time to yeah. uh, go on the road with Dylan sometimes for years. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, what, what you're doing, right, is you're, you're pledging your time for this community. Yeah. Like, I'm going to do this service. Well, in the morning, yeah, I think I think that's what the Substack community of writers is great for and and finding guest posters and connections like you is like we're all pledging our time. I'm pledging my time to you to build this platform. You know, you're you know, you're giving away part of your product on Substack for free. You know, come all within, you know, come 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 into this space with me and then hopefully people will like see the value and then they're like you know what, I'm going to contribute, you know, monthly to Ray or, you know, monthly to Shuffle Synchronicities. And then, you know, then there's, then it grows. Thanks for being a big part of my community on Substack Music as well. I look forward to whatever else you do in the future, buddy. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. All right, Ray. Thanks, man.
Just like every stone falling, just like every rain. 